Hello, everyone. Just a few quick notes about this episode before we jump into the content. My guest and I are talking about ocean pandemics, so because of the world we currently live in, we do mention COVID-19 occasionally. Also, the disease we're focusing on in this episode affects sea stars in pretty gruesome ways. So a couple of the stories we're sharing today are a bit gory. But hopefully that doesn't keep too many people away because this episode has definitely hit home for me in a lot of ways. My outdoor education origin story can be traced back to a beach in 2014, watching sea stars fall apart over the course of a summer. That summer inspired me to get involved with citizen science and to learn more about our oceans. And hopefully the story we're telling today about sea stars can do the same for some of you. Hi, I'm Kate Harubi, and this is Go Forth in Science podcast, where we combine adventure and science into a tale that will hopefully make the next time you step outside even better. It's June 2014, and I'm standing on a beach in Washington State. I'm working in a summer camp, so when I look to the left, there's a dock filled with kids, bravely jumping into the cold Pacific water. When I look to the right, the pebbles on the beach turn into large, jagged rocks, covered in barnacles and algae, hiding crabs, and providing an intertidal jungle gym for the kids who don't want to submerge themselves. Campers have been exploring this beach for almost 100 years, but this year, something is different. Orange and purple sea stars normally covered the rocks and crevices below the surface of the water. This year, they're above the water, dripping off rocks and disintegrating before our eyes. Their limbs are detaching from their bodies. It honestly looks like they're melting. This continued throughout the summer, and by the end of August, the sea stars were gone. This is sea star wasting syndrome. This episode's guest is Drew Harvell, a scientist who studies ocean diseases and has been looking into this sea star disease since it hit the West Coast. She has impactful stories and important insights, so let's get into the interview. I'm a professor emerita from Cornell University, and I'm a full-time researcher at Friday Harbor Laboratories. And my focus is the health of the Salish Sea. And there are just a number of big issues with climate change affecting health of the Salish Sea. And so I'm happy to be doing this full time. Quick side note, so I know how to talk about it. Do you say sea stars or starfish or do you care? Oh, God, I might lapse into saying starfish, but let's try to do sea stars is more correct. They used to be called starfish, but we know they're not fish. So Mm -hmm. the more correct usage these days is to call them sea stars. You focus on lots of different diseases, one of them being sea stars and the wasting disease that they've been hit with over the past several years. How did you get into studying sea stars and wasting disease? Well, to go way back to the beginning, we were studying corals in the Caribbean and they got hit with a big bleaching event in 97, 98. And that was kind of when I first started being concerned about health of marine organisms and particularly as an ecologist, the health of foundation species like a coral We started studying these outbreaks that were affecting corals and that were partially driven by warming climate. One thing led to another. We started studying seagrasses. Again, the story was actually quite similar in that this is a foundation ecosystem. It's ecologically really important. And these plants are affected by a heat-sensitive disease. So in 2011, there were reports of wasting in sea stars, 
it was not something we could leave on the side. It seemed an immediate priority to figure out what was causing sea star wasting. At the start of it, we had no idea of how big it was going to be. Previous outbreaks of sea star wasting, which were always a little mysterious, had, had usually been a single species affected in a small geographic range. This thing was to grow into the largest epidemic, and basically it's a pandemic at this point, in the ocean because it affected over 20 different sea star species and a huge geographic range. By the third year of it, it was all the way from Mexico to Alaska. And so it really became enormous. <laughs> um, and plus the killing power was large. Millions of stars were killed, especially in the first couple of waves when there were so many susceptible individuals that were dying very rapidly on our shores. My first night witnessing what it was like to be on a beach where this outbreak was happening. And this is early December 2013, when we heard that there were big outbreaks on the beaches in Seattle. I came back early from the Nature Conservancy meeting, flew into Seattle. We met a videographer, Laura James, out on a beach that she had scoped out. And the low tide in the winter are at night. So we went out, it was about eight or nine o'clock with headlamps and boots and gloves and our cameras and data notepads. And I just wasn't prepared for how horrible it was. Um, I wasn't prepared for how upsetting it was going to be to see these live sea star arms all over the beach and dead and dying bodies. I mean, it was, it was like, something had blown them apart. We were looking under rocks and in crevices and trying to find them. And there were several species. It was just very sad and upsetting to just see that kind of all laid out in nature. This is happening on a really big scale. So what exactly is wasting disease? Wasting diseases are typically things that are slow acting. And by the time an animal dies, maybe it's no longer reproductive. It's not eating very well. It's maybe taken months. This disease can take hold over a series of weeks and it strikes stars that are in the prime of life. So we're, we frequently will find stars that are reproductive. Their arms sadly fall off and an arm may be filled with very healthy internal organs and gonads. Um, again, it indicates how rapidly this acts. Some of us at various times have called it the zombie virus, um, just to sort of underline the fact that it's a bit different. What makes their arms fall off? There are more questions than answers with this. We do have evidence from our original experiments in 2014 for the likelihood that it's a small sized microorganism like a virus that's the causative agent. And we are actually at this moment repeating those experiments again to be sure that we can nail down that it has an infectious cause. Stay tuned, we'll let you know how those go. <laughs> it's very difficult to determine or decipher what the causative agent is in a lot of these cases. And again, many people are probably used to the way the CDC operates or the way we operate with human health threats that are infectious. Uh, and those are often quite quickly solved because we have enormous firepower. We have enormous numbers of scientists and enormous resources brought to bear on that issue. So by the time COVID surfaced, we really had a pretty good idea of what it was. 
in the case of something like a sea star where we don't have special cell lines, we don't have special labs that are studying this, it really takes time to figure out the causative agent. The withering syndrome of abalone took almost a decade to figure out what that was. And so it's actually not that surprising that it's taking a while with something as weird as the sea star wasting. Now, a lot of the time when people think of sea stars, they think of an orange creature with five limbs. In the Pacific Northwest, that orange sea star can sometimes also be purple, brown, gray, or anywhere along that spectrum of colors. These are the ochre stars and the mottled star. Personally, I see ochre stars the most these days because they live near the surface of the water. I asked Drew if I was still seeing them because they were resistant to the disease, and she said that there might be a chance that they are resistant, but it's also because there were a lot of them to begin with. It means that even with a huge population cut from wasting disease, there are still a few around. A species of sea star that has almost disappeared entirely is the sunflower star. We observed pretty much right away that the sunflower star, which is like the biggest star, it's got 24 arms, it's the fastest star in the world, but it was the most susceptible to this disease, which is a little bit ironic that this big, powerful, strong star that can kill and eat almost anything is the one that's just getting nailed by this pathogen. One of the themes I like to talk about is that we need to step back a little bit and ask, what do we know about diseases that affect multiple species? And they're notorious for causing a lot of damage to the most susceptible species. So in this case, our sunflower star seemed to have been the most susceptible at the beginning. And it's the one that recently in the past year, colleagues have been able to designate as an endangered species This designation was given out last December by the International Union for Conservation of Nature, the IUCN, which means that it is globally recognized as a critically endangered species. There's also been some talk about even listing it as a U.S. endangered species just because it is so diminished, well over 95% diminished in the continental U.S. As scientists, there's a lot to do. One of the projects that came out of this was actually to do captive breeding with a sunflower star. And this is something we're all pretty excited about that a scientist at Friday Harbor Laboratories, Dr. Jason Hodine, has been able to raise and captively rear the sunflower star. And so he's got little babies that are about three inches across and that are over a year old. One of the hopes is that someday those can be released back into the wild. That would be very exciting. So you just completed a summer in the field. What does a field season of finding sea stars look like? Well, our biggest effort this summer was actually studying the health of seagrasses to do the monitoring of another disease that seagrass have. It seems to be quite sensitive to warming conditions. And so we are monitoring it in a large study that's a collaboration with the Smithsonian Institution from San Diego all the way to Alaska. Over the last three years, we've lost the upper almost 20 feet of some of our seagrass meadows in the intertidal. And part of that has been caused by this disease. So we're kind of intensifying our work with that just due to the importance of seagrass meadows as habitat, as providing filtration and water quality, and even some solutions to disease for other organisms. However, we're also monitoring our sea star populations here, and there are about 10 sites that we started monitoring in 2014. Some sites have shown further big declines and signs of wasting this summer. And then our other part of the fieldwork this summer 
are the experiments we're doing to try to investigate further the nature of the infectious agent and what it is, because we still do not know. It's thought to be a small organism like a virus, but we don't know which one. And so work is underway to try to get closer to an identification. So with less sea stars around, what does that mean for our ecosystems? Well, this epidemic that's affected sea stars has been one that's had kind of a domino effect on our undersea environment. The sunflower star likes to eat baby sea urchins. And with the vast removal over such a wide host range of the sunflower star, in many locations, sea urchins have kind of exploded. Their populations have grown very large very quickly. Now, sea urchins are often thought to be a good thing in the ocean because they can control nuisance algae. They can, on coral reefs, they keep the reefs clean. So they're generally a good thing. But unfortunately, in huge numbers, they eat all the algae that they can find. And so, especially in California, the large outbreak of these sea urchins has caused decimation of kelp beds. In fact, there's a name for it. It's called an urchin barren. So there's a lot of concern about the sustainability of marine ecosystems with the loss of the sunflower star. Ecosystems are complex webs and especially undersea ecosystems. I mean, we do the best we can with divers and observational experimental studies, but this is like a massive change. It's like the biggest experiment of the last hundred years. Uh, And so there's been a lot of surprises that have accompanied it. If people are listening to this podcast and they're like, oh my gosh, I want to do something to help. Is there anything that people can do to help? Or is it kind of just in the hands of the scientists at this point? One of the things that's been actually amazing about this epidemic is the degree of public interest. And that has been very important. The fact that people have cared, that they remained interested, that they want to be involved. And so I would say, absolutely, don't leave it to the scientists keep yourself engaged, make sure that you understand what's going on and ask questions about this. I think it's absolutely essential. Our work started with a $200 check from a sixth grade class in Arkansas. These kids were so upset in 2014 about what they were hearing about the sea stars, even though they have no oceans there, that they mailed me a check (laughs) and said, please, can you do something? To save our sea stars. And honestly, it really, it just, I mean, even now when I think about it, it really affects me emotionally that what that was like, that moment of getting that check. I'm like, well, okay, I'm going to match it with my money. And then one of our donors heard about that and provided much more than a match. And that was the funding that allowed us to do all our original surveys. And so people's caring in small amounts of funds and staying engaged is really important. This has been a long one, right? This has gone on for so many years and it's a little confusing, the ups and downs that we've had, but I think it's important people understand it's still going on. So is the hope then to figure out those few sea stars that are resistant and go forward with those sea stars? Yeah, well, the experiments that we're doing are designed to learn more about the infectious agent but they're also designed to learn more about the immune system of sea stars. And then we're also studying the genes that get turned on and off in an infection because of the 20 or so species that are affected by this, some of them are quite resistant. And there's a few species that really don't get it. 
we need to know what's special about those because that really could help us in the future. If you are interested in learning more about sea star wasting disease and other diseases in our ocean, Drew has a book called Ocean Outbreak. You can find it pretty much wherever you get books, and Drew also recommends the audio version of it. She said the narrator is awesome, and if you like podcasts, you should like this audiobook. I was thinking about it, and it's like, oh my God, how do I write a book about this? It's so important, right? It's a very, it's a clear climate change issue, right? Disease gets worse under in a warming ocean for all kinds of things. But you know, there's just, it's such a big story. There's sea stars and snails and salmon and dolphins and whales and on and on and on. And I was trying to think of a way to simplify it. And I realized if I picked four of them, that maybe I could have each of these organisms represent a different facet of how the disease was operating. It's kind of fun to guess, well, which four was it, right? Which ones did you pick? And so I picked coral because we worked for so many years on coral reefs. And that totally represents climate change because the diseases of corals are so driven by a warming climate, as well as the bleaching of corals. Of course, I had to talk about sea stars because we identify this as the largest epidemic in the ocean of wildlife. I picked abalone. That's harder for people to understand, but it's one of my favorite stories about studying disease in the ocean because it took so long to figure out the infectious agent, which is a bacterium. And one of the reasons it took so long was this problem with the asymptomatics being carriers of the disease. And I love to talk about the way scientists prevailed in the end on that one. And then I chose salmon. We've had worldwide virus outbreaks that have taken down our farmed salmon that have spilled over into some wild salmon. And then there are wild salmon with yet different diseases. So it's a very big issue. And then the final part of the book is what do we do, right? (laughs) Um, That's kind of the reason to write a book like that. And there's some really exciting solutions. If we put our scientific efforts towards solutions to disease in the ocean, I think we'd come up and make a lot of progress. Do you have any social media that you would like to share? Yeah, I really find Twitter to be an incredibly powerful way to follow science issues. And so I'd encourage anybody who's interested in marine ecology, diseases in the ocean, you're welcome to follow me on Twitter. It's at Drew Harvell. We've maintained through myself and my lab, pretty active Twitter. Got kind of a smaller Instagram. It's called Drew Coral. And of course, a really great website that a collection of my students have put together. It's drewharvell.com. Cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you very much for being so well prepared and having great questions and doing this. And now for our episode recap. Sea star wasting disease, or syndrome, is a massive ocean pandemic. It affects many sea star species and hits them fast and hard. It's pretty gruesome. Their arms fall off. And it can decimate an area in just a few weeks. Drew has been studying it since the maybe a virus, hit our shores and has been integral in monitoring the affected species and their populations. And while scientists may not know exactly what is causing the pandemic yet, they have still been able to create hope for the future, like raising awareness by getting the hardest hit sunflower sea star listed as a critically endangered species with the IUCN and starting a breeding program for it. Sunflower sea stars can grow to be the size of a manhole cover, and as Drew was describing the three-inch-wide, year-old babies in the program, I was pretty much the embodiment of the hard eyes emoji. Drew also stressed the importance of the public staying engaged and involved. That can mean looking into programs at your local aquarium, reading Drew's book on ocean diseases, 
donating to Sea Star Research, or even just talking to your friends and family about a pandemic that isn't COVID-19 and is underwater, and turn sea stars into zombies. Thanks in this episode go to the labs and institutions that are working on sea star wasting disease. The Friday Harbor Labs, the Nature Conservancy, the Seattle Aquarium, and many others. You can find links to Drew's social media, her website, and her book at goforthinscience.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening, and go save a sea star.